0: Well, good morning again, everybody. Two weeks ago, we um, saw how finally, after years of waiting and chasing and persecution, finally, even after civil war, David finally became king over the United Tribes of Israel. Now, until David, um, tribal identity for the Israelites was um often a lot stronger than national identity, in the same way that um Texans are Texans first and Americans second, um in the same way that arguably West Australians are West Australians first and Australians second. In the same way um you know the the, the Danites or the Benjamites might have considered themselves Benjamites first and then Israelites second. Yeah, they were okay at coming together when there was a gifted leader or a threat from outside or both, but otherwise it was usually one tribe against another. And as we read in our text today, the very 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 first thing that David did once he had been anointed as king over all of Israel was in chapter 6 verse 5 um sorry, chapter 5 verse 6 The first thing he did was to march up to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. And this was strategically a very wise thing for him to do. You see, Jerusalem was a city that wasn't in anybody's territory. It was in a narrow strip of land between the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And it was held by the Jebusites, a people group that in 200 years, neither Joshua nor the judges had been able to displace or defeat. Now, humanly speaking, the Jebusites were the original custodians of the land, and as far as they were concerned, they weren't going anywhere. Spiritually speaking, they were a banned nation, which means that as far as God was concerned, they had no right to be there at all. They were on borrowed time, and their borrowed time ran out with the arrival of David. And that David takes this action, his very first action as king, it's tremendously effective because it shows us that his agenda is the Bible's agenda, that, that his, his lead is the law of Moses. What he's doing is he's moving forward the occupation of the land, giving to Israel her inheritance according to the law of Moses. Very impressive action. Politically speaking, also, given that the land wasn't occupied by any Israelite tribe, it was neutral ground, it was a great place for a capital city. Neither Sydney nor Melbourne, but maybe this kind of lonely spot in the bush. We'll call it Canberra. It was a politically astute thing to do. It wasn't in anybody's territory. It was a great place for a new city, for a new era of unification. And as a city, it was a relatively secure and, and easy to defend city, built on top of a hill named Mount Zion. Now, the meaning of Zion has been lost, but it might just simply mean fortification. Fortification. And as you may know, Mount Zion, the hill on which Jerusalem is built, it's a, it's, a, it's a wedge-shaped ridge that extends east to west, and it's really steep and pointy at the western end. And as you may also be aware, um, the Bible focuses a lot of attention on this city. From start to finish, in the word of God, this is Jerusalem, Zion, the city of David. And those phrases and words ring with multiple, with multiple meanings for us. Well, God's first, sorry. David's first action as king is to take the Jebusite city as his own. Um, the phrase, um, as, as the account opens, the phrase David and his men uh, suggests a small fighting force. I, I don't know how many, 20, 40. This isn't a national army. This is David and his men, 30. Maybe a hundred. We don't know. Uh, but when the Jebusites saw them, they thought, obviously, this threat is ridiculous. And they felt invincible in their hilltop fortress. And they mocked David, jeering down from the walls. Hey, even, even the blind and the lame could defeat you. In other words, this is going to be child's play. Even with a blindfold on, my ankles tied together, I could still pelt rocks down at you from up here. And you'd have to run away. Even the blind and the lame could defeat you. Nevertheless, our narrator tells us, David captured the fortress of Zion and it became the city of David. And then at verse 8, the narrator backs up and tells us the story again, this time with more detail. And archaeological excavations of um, this area of the city of Jerusalem had been originally inhabited by the Jebusites in the second half of of the 20th century, this area was excavated, and um, the, uh, uh, the archaeologists have, have, have found the water shaft, and we now have a clearer picture of what was going on. I understand that you can visit the water shaft today. You see, Jerusalem got its water supply from a spring named Gihon in the Kidron Valley. That's the valley on the south side of the ridge, and the spring gushes up into a cave. And the Jebusites, who'd been living with the threat of invasion by the Israelites for 200 years, they'd built from behind their defensive walls, they'd built a tunnel, and then a room, and then a staircase, which took them to a vertical shaft, which was a vertical 19-meter drop, 45 feet Uh, down into that cave where the spring came out. That means, of course, that they don't have to go outside the city walls to get water. If they're being besieged, they can just go down the tunnel, down the staircase, and drop a bucket down the shaft. Well, this is, this is David's observation. In, in order to take the city, we're going to have to enter by way of the water shaft, scaling a 45-foot vertical shaft, one person at a time, and be ready for fierce hand-to-hand combat um, at the other end of that, of that tunnel. Um, And so this event shows us certainly that David and his men were extremely brave and they're extremely capable of commando SAS style operations. But more than that, um, I think we're meant to see and realize that David saw a possibility where the Jebusites saw impossibility. Because, I mean, I mean, after all, if, if, you know, if you, if you thought that if you thought that people were going to come out of this stuff, you just would sort of put a stone over it. You know, they must have thought, no, nah, that's impossible. But David realized, mm, not impossible. Hard, yeah, difficult, not impossible. And throughout the Bible, throughout Scripture, actually there is a clear message. And that message is that being filled with the Holy Spirit gives us an unfair advantage over our enemies. The Holy Spirit gives us the wisdom of God, the mind of Christ with the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit, we're able to think outside of the box. With the Holy Spirit, we're able to think beyond human assumptions. And above all else, even if we're feeling scared and afraid and alone, above everything, we know that God is with us and that with God, nothing is impossible. You can't tell me it's impossible. Very, very difficult perhaps, but nothing's impossible for God. And in actual fact, the message that the narrator is giving us is reinforced by how the narrator concludes the episode. With these words, that is why they say the blind and the lame will not enter the palace. Now, for us, uh, this can sound dangerously politically incorrect, perhaps even hate speech. Perhaps this is discrimination against disabled people, so a bit worried about this phrase and to be sure david's sensibilities aren't the same as ours but even so that's actually not what's going on you see in in middle eastern culture it's always been considered very very smart and impressive to express by way of proverbs and riddles and smart sayings but if that's true it's even smarter to outsmart your enemy by subverting or inverting the meaning of his proverb. Now, in preparing this sermon, I I racked my brain for trying to think of examples of this kind of conversation from contemporary film and television. And actually, I just couldn't think of any. And if you can think of some, then by all means, come and tell me um, at morning tea time. But I think we've lost the art of this kind of conversation, that's why we don't understand it. it, goes over our head. But this statement by way of proverb and come back by inverting the proverb, it's actually quite common in the Old Testament, and, and it's reasonably frequent in Jesus' speech. Um, in John chapter 4, um, the, the, the text that Yvonne read for us, um, Jesus begins a speech by offering a proverb. I have food. That you know nothing about my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish the work. And then he continues along and he takes two of their proverbs and he inverts them. He changes their meaning. He he makes them work backwards. Don't, Don't you have a proverb? Four months more until the harvest. In other words, some things can't be hurried. Everything in good time. No, I tell you, but look. Look around you. Use your eyes fields are white for harvest don't you have another proverb one man sows and another reaps in other words life sucks everything's basically unjust and unfair one man sows but another man reaps it's life sucks it's unfair yes it's unfair because you're reaping and you haven't done any work for this Again, in another conversation, Jesus gets asked for help. And he doesn't refuse, but he does offer a proverb. And his proverb is this. It is not right to take the children's bread and make it fall to the dogs. And the person to whom this proverb was offered came back by reversing it. And she said, ah, yet even the dogs take the bread that has fallen from the child's table. And... uh, she shows us a number of things. One of the things that she shows us is that she's really quick-witted. Another thing that she shows us is that she's put her faith in Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. It's a huge step of faith. Now, I won't say too much more about that text because I've preached on it recently. But suffice to say, we often completely misunderstand those conversations because we don't have conversations like that anymore. People say, oh, Jesus has insulted that woman. He's called her a dog. That's not what's going on at all. This is proverbs being used backwards and forwards, and that's what David does here. The Jebusites use a proverb as an insult. Even the the blind and the lame could ward you off. And David sees that in using that proverb, the Jebusites have inadvertently used that as a self-designation. Oh, they're calling themselves the blind and the lame. Well, that sounds a bit rude. I wouldn't have said that. But seeing as they've already called themselves the blind and lame, let's run with that. The blind and the lame will never enter. The blind and the lame, if we're going to take the city, we're going to have to use the, the water shaft to, 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 to defeat the blind and the lame, and they will never enter the palace. So, And we would do well to remember, if we think that we've perhaps discovered a prejudice or a contempt in David, and that's not impossible, But we would do well to remember that actually his ancestor Jacob was lame and his ancestor Isaac was blind and that later on in the story of David, he will welcome into his own household as a member of his family, lame Mephibosheth, who was lame in both feet. So this isn't prejudice. It isn't discrimination against disabled people. No, the saying, the blind and the lame will not enter the palace does not refer to handicapped people or disabled people at all. It refers to the Jebusites specifically as David's enemies, and in fact, any enemies of David in general. And the meaning of the proverb is therefore straightforward. Those who oppose the Messiah will never defeat him. Why? Because God is with him and nothing's impossible for God. These episodes are related to us so that we can see ourselves the wisdom of David. He's an incredibly smart guy. S.A.S. Commando, poet, um, proverb, touche. But wisdom in Hebrew thought is very practical. Biblical wisdom could be understood as knowing exactly what to do and doing it. We, we tend to intellectualize wisdom. We might define wisdom as something like, oh, it's um, knowledge combined with insight, perhaps with, uh, on the basis of experience. But wisdom in the Bible is practical. It's knowing what to do and doing it. And in these episodes, David shows us that he knows exactly what to do and he does it. Having taken possession of Jerusalem, he builds it up. He's not lazy. He does not waste his energy on partying or indulgent living. Lots of kings in the ancient Near East did precisely that, and many will do that following him, but he doesn't. And he devotes his energy to securing the security of God's people, looking after them. And right in the middle of this section comes this verse, verse 10, And he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. And it's easy to read that politically. You know, David's influence spread and his power grew and his reign became more secure. And that's not wrong. But in Hebrew, it is literally David walked and walking, he became bigger. And the Lord, God all-powerful, was with him. You could be quite justified in translating the sentiment of the verse in this way, because it fits well with the context. David kept going. And as he kept going, he grew up. Because the Lord was with him. We are meant to understand that David is becoming more politically influential, but more than that, he is growing spiritually and therefore growing personally. He's becoming more human as he hangs out with God. And uh, this, I, 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 I want to, this to register because, because we're, we're all infected by the world's standards, and we're conditioned by the world to desire increasing influence, success, and significance. And that's not really what's being reported here. What's being reported here is increasing humanity as a result of faithfulness. So when the king of Tyre sends envoys and supplies to David, grace and favor in the eyes of a northern neighbor, David responds not with proud and boastful thoughts, but rather David knew that this fortunate outcome was a reflection upon two things. Firstly, he knew that the success was not from himself; it was from God. Secondly, he knew that the success was not for himself, but rather for others, for God's people. Um, and that's there's ocean of sanity in those two sentiments. In in verses thirteen and fourteen. Our narrator moves us forward and he summarizes the next 40 years of David's family life. David takes to himself multiple concubines and wives and 11 children are named. These children are in addition to the six named in chapter 3, giving David 17 children in total. And uh, First Chronicles actually names 19 for us. So 17, 19 children, something like that. Um. If you're perhaps a bit troubled by the reference to polygamy, uh, that is having multiple wives, then you're right to be troubled by that. Uh, We know from the context in the Bible, this is not the way God meant things to be. The Old Testament tolerates polygamy, but it never celebrates it, praises it, or commends it. Indeed, often it is deliberately put in a bad light. Now, the law of Moses specified for kings that they were not to take many wives without specifying what many was. All the husbands over there looked up at me when I said that. How many is many? <laughs> um, uh, Deuteronomy 17:17. 17, 17. But it does specify that the danger is a spiritual danger. So there's no argument here. David would have done better to have had only one wife and to have stuck with her, not have several wives. However, our context here suggests that there is certainly a, there, there is certainly wisdom in what David is doing. You see, in the ancient Near East, when somebody tried to assassinate a king, they for multiple reasons, not just killed the king, but his entire family, all of his sons, all of his children as well. There's absolutely no point taking out a ruler and to be in turn killed by his sons. So you took out the king and all of his sons. So what David is doing is he is having as many children as possible, but he's doing this in order to make his reign secure, as secure as possible for the security of the nation. It's also clear that David actually had very few wives, given the standards of his age. For example, the first four children named there in our passage today, they all had the same mum. They were all born to the same woman, and that was um, um, Bathsheba. And so the number of wives that David must have had must have actually been remarkably modest and humble for his time. Um, Solomon in keeping with uh, the habits of, of many kings in the ancient Near East, Solomon had a thousand wives and concubines. And uh, at the 4 p.m. service yesterday evening, we, 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 we talked for a little while about what that would have been like. You're, you're vaguely familiar. Do, do, have we met? Are oh, we married. Yes, right, sure. And, and one person calculated in his head that to marry a thousand women over the life of Solomon's life, must have he had a marriage ceremony every 12 days. Well, in comparison, David is modest and humble and obedient to the law of Moses. And our text finishes with two further examples of David's wisdom, him twice defeating the Philistines in battle. Now, uh, uh, the Philistines were a coastal people, a seagoing people. They were wealthy and technologically advanced. They lived in areas uh, bordering southern Israel. However, because of their desire to expand eastward, uh, they were um, away from the Mediterranean. They were in nearly constant conflict with the Israelites and um, you know, for a generation, Israel has been divided and distracted by civil war and, and and disputes between tribes. But now, suddenly, they are a united nation under a mighty warrior king, and that's something completely different altogether. So they combine and go out in force to destroy David. And in huge numbers, they come up and fill the valley of Rephaim, which I understand can be seen from Jerusalem. You face west and and the hills part and there's the valley in the distance and the philistines do that they fill the valley and they do that twice and what's really impressive is that david stops to pray twice he perhaps could have been forgiven actually for not praying I mean, after all, dealing with the Philistinian threat is job number one on the agenda for Israelite rulers. It is David's job to deal effectively with this crisis. And I can just hear the people saying to David, as David said, hold everything, I just need to pray. I can just hear people saying, what's there to pray about? This is his job. The whole point of being a king, of having a king, that's quite all right, by the way, happens to all of us. (laughs) (coughs) Um, The whole point of being a king, the whole point of having a king, is that a king will save his people from their enemies. The whole point of being God's anointed king is that you save God's people from their enemies. And the Philistines are the enemies of God's people, Israel. But what's impressive here is that David doesn't lean on his own understanding, nor is he controlled by his emotions. He he, he still prays and waits to hear from God before he does anything. And that's even more important the second time around, when the Philistinians gather for a second time. Again, we all fall into the habit in various situations where we've been serving God in the past, and we go, oh, I know how to do this. You know, I don't need to pray. I know how to do this. We fall into the habit of praying because we think we already know what God wants us to do. But David does not trust in his experience. And his wisdom is proved right. God's command is different this time. This time, do not go straight up. Rather, circle around the back and wait in front of the poplar trees. And... And... That's tremendous spiritual maturity, and, and God gives David success, utter success. The Philistines will never again be a serious threat to Israel. Um, we read, in addition, that David scatters them. They've been thoroughly routed, chased straight back, right deep into their own territory. They even abandon their idols on the battlefield. Now, the idols were, were statues that represented their gods, and they represented their gods symbolically, which in, a middle, in an ancient Near East um, setting means they represented the gods magically. If the idols were there, the gods were there, or the goddess, or the multiple gods. Physical warfare in these days, therefore, was also spiritual warfare. And it would have been obvious to everyone, Israelites and Philistines, that, that David's defeat of the armies of Philistia meant that the Lord God Almighty, the God of David, was more powerful than the gods of the Philistines. And there, there's a detail given that David's men carried the idols off. And that adds to the irony. We see that these idols could not only, not only could they not uh, save, they couldn't save themselves. The account of this same event in the book of First Chronicles adds a reassuring detail. Uh, David took the idols and burnt them. Um, the soldiers may have wanted to keep the idols, perhaps as a souvenir of victory, and also because of their great value. They were made out of silver and gold. But David destroyed them in obedience to the law of Moses in order to protect his soldiers from the temptation of idolatry. Well, this is the start of David's reign as king over a united Israel. And David is presented to us as an ideal king. He is wise. He knows what to do and he does it. He is humble, serving God, with God and for God. He is prayerful. His actions are to defend God's people from God's enemies. God's enemies within, the Jebusites, and God's enemies without, the Philistines. And from an Old Testament perspective, David is indeed the ideal king. The one against whom, the gold standard, the one against whom every other king in the Old Testament will be measured against. That's not to say he never sinned or faltered; He did. And we're going to look at some spectacular examples in, in the next few weeks. But as for us, just to point out the obvious, um, we're not Jews and we're not living in Jerusalem and we're not under the Old Covenant and we're not called to fight wars against banned nations such as the Jebusites, nor are our enemies human like the Philistines. So if this text is going to speak to us, it's going to speak to us spiritually, analogically to some degree, as we seek to live under Christ's reign under the new covenant. So, how has this text spoken to you this morning? Well, this is, I guess, this is how it's spoken to me. I'm I'm really impressed with how zealous David is in taking on the enemies of God's people. Uh, we have enemies. We have enemies within. Um, uh, we have strongholds to storm and to defeat. Uh, Our enemies are internal thoughts, disobedient thoughts, thoughts disobedient to Christ. They're they're enemies within. We have enemies without. um, Every argument, philosophy, policy, or religion that is opposed to Christ's reign. So we have enemies, and that's for me as a disciple. I'm keen to have the wisdom of David, and I'm keen to have the zeal of David in fighting Christ's battles. And the good news is that actually all Christians are filled with the Spirit as a baptismal birthright. We, we have the mind of Christ. God's wisdom is freely given. Um, we, we can have the wisdom of David because we are born again. I'm also impressed with David's prayer life. I found it edifying to see him at prayer, praying twice when others would have told him it was superfluous, Um, He doesn't lean on his own understanding. He doesn't trust in his own experience. He keeps on coming back to God in prayer. And I'm impressed by how David handles success. You see, we've already read through like 15 chapters of David persecuted, David harassed, David failing. And we know he handles that stuff well. Will success be the unraveling of him? Well, it is for plenty of people. But it's not. David handles success well. Why? Because he knows his success is not from himself, it's from God. And he knows it's not for himself, it's for others. I hope, trust and pray that this text has spoken to you as well uh, in some way and encourage you to share your thoughts, insights and revelations over morning tea. The Lord be with you.